Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. We are going to get right into it this morning as we await the next release of hostages from Gaza. Israel and Hamas are now two days and 10 hours into their four-day truce. On Friday, 13 Israelis and 11 foreign nationals were released from captivity in Gaza. Yesterday, after a long delay, another 13 Israelis and four foreigners were released. That brings the total to 26 Israelis and 15 foreigners who have been freed during the truce. On the flip side of this arrangement, 39 Palestinians were released from Israeli prisons on Friday and 39 again on Saturday. Another major aspect of the deal was getting aid into Gaza, and hundreds of trucks filled with food, water, fuel, medical supplies, and more have crossed into the territory since the truce began on Friday. Let me bring in CNN's Oren Lieberman, who is in Tel Aviv for us with the latest. Oren, I wanted to ask you, uh, the, the truces previously in the, in the, over the years between Hamas and the Israeli government have often been fraught with difficulty. What was the delay uh, yesterday, and does that is that portentous? Does that tell us that this this fragile truce might actually collapse? So first, let's look at where we stand today. We are expecting and anticipating that the movement and the transfer of Israeli hostages from the hands of Hamas to the Red Cross should or could begin sometime soon. It was two days ago in the first transfer. Uh, of hostages that it had already begun. But as we know, yesterday was a very different story, and that is where it was fraught with difficulties and at risk of falling apart. So yesterday, Hamas complained that Israel was not living up to its side of the bargain, that all of the aid trucks hadn't gotten in, and crucially, that they hadn't gotten to northern Gaza, which Israel has still called an active war zone. That led to a massive hours-long delay and fear amongst all the parties involved here, and not just Israel and Hamas, but also the Qataris and the Americans, that the deal itself may fall apart. There was an intensive diplomatic effort there to make sure that it remained together. On the Israeli side, Israel also accused Hamas of violating the terms of the agreement because there was a child released without a, without a mother, and, and the agreement was to keep families together. So perhaps not surprising at all that we see accusations going back and forth of violating the terms of the agreement. What is crucial, though, Fareed, is that the agreement held and the transfer happened. In addition, Hamas also released some foreign nationals for the second time tomorrow. Now we're waiting to see, and so far it looks like it is moving forward again, and we are waiting to see when the transfer once again begins of more Israeli hostages coming out of Gaza, and then subsequently more Palestinian prisoners released from Israeli jails, women and children on both sides of that agreement. We have no reason to believe at this point that today's transfer is at risk, but we shall see, Fareed. Oren, is there any indication as to whether there is a logic to 
uh, the foreign nationals being released? Is they are they prioritizing Israelis? Are they uh, do Americans you know are, are they top priority at the bottom of the list? Do we have any sense of this, or is it sort of random? From what we can tell, it's sort of random. For example, the youngest in captivity, 10-month-old Kfir Bibas and his family, remains in captivity. There were some who expected maybe they come out first simply based on age and the family comes out. That simply is not the case. And that family whom we spoke with a short time ago says they've got no information at all that they'll be part of tonight's release. Meanwhile, the foreign nationals, at least as Hamas is trying to portray it, are essentially an extra. There's nothing in exchange for them. They're simply being released. They, of course, are not part of this conflict in any way, not part of this war. So they're being released on, a, on what appears to be a random basis, 10 Thais and a Filipino on the first night, four more Thai nationals last night. So we'll see. But even on the Israeli side, there doesn't appear to be any rhyme or reason to it. And then today to learn, we're expecting our first American release. There are at least two others we expect as part of the women and children. But there doesn't appear to be any way to look at a list and say, OK, these people are coming out now until Hamas releases that list. Orrin Lieberman, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for your great reporting. I want to now bring in Amir Tiban. He is diplomatic correspondent for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. He was also a resident of one of the kibbutzes that was attacked on October 7th. The pictures you're seeing on your screen are Amir's house. He and his family spent 10 hours locked in their safe room during the attack, only to be saved by Amir's father, a former IDF general. Amir believes that today's release of hostages will include residents of his kibbutz, Nahal Oz. Uh, Amir, pleasure to have you on. Let me first ask you, what does it feel like? I know you're right there, um, because there must be mixed feelings. Some people are being released, but others apparently will not be from this kibbutz, right? Hi, Farid. Thank you so much for having me. Right now, there is, first of all, a lot of anxiety and um, suspense because we don't know what is going to happen. Uh, last night, there was supposed to be a release in the early evening hours here in Israel of uh, 13 of our hostages from a neighboring community to ours. And eventually, they only got out around 11 p.m. because Hamas pulled a list of uh, dirty um, and vicious and really cruel tricks to try to delay and postpone and buy time. And we want to see, first and foremost, that today's list of 13 people actually come out and get to meet their families. And we here in my community are expecting some news, but um, I don't want to say anything beyond that right now because everything is very, very delicate. I will just say we are as a community going through a very difficult period since October 7th. We're trying to hold one another, support one another, stay together. And this is what we're going to do today as well. Just be there for one another and hope for good news. I mean, let me ask you, if I may, to put your hat on. You're a distinguished dip diplomatic correspondent. Uh, what is your sense of the prospects of this ceasefire uh, being extended? There are people talking. Your President Biden has said there's a chance. Uh, do you think the Israeli government would uh, would accept that? It seems to me from the initial rhetoric, highly unlikely, because the Israeli government has said they want to get rid of Hamas, and surely that has not yet been done. Farid, Israel is facing an impossible dilemma at this moment. We have no good choices. We only have terrible choices in the current situation. 
On the one hand, even after the very, very exciting and wonderful uh, re releases of two groups of hostages last night and the night before, we still have approximately 200 people in the hands of the enemy. The vast majority of them are civilians, including more women, more children. And our first priority is to get them out, to bring them home after more than 50 days in the tunnels of Gaza, in the hands of ruthless terrorists. Some of these, the hostages, before they were kidnapped, their own family members were murdered before their eyes. So our, our first priority is to bring them back. And I do believe if there is a possibility to prolong the current ceasefire in return for the release of more hostages, Israel will be willing to discuss it. I know President Biden is pushing for it. I know Secretary Blinken is working for it. And other countries in the region, Qatar, Egypt. However, we should not be mistaken to think that a long-term ceasefire ending the war is in the cards right now. It is not. Israel has been fighting against Hamas now for 50 days. There's been a lot of achievements for the Israeli military in the northern part of Gaza, but Hamas is still barricading itself in the southern part of Gaza among the civilian population over there. It still has capabilities there that, if left intact, will be used to slaughter Israeli citizens again in the future. So while I do see a chance for prolonging this ceasefire by a few more days to allow the release of more hostages, I would not put my money right now on a long-term ceasefire as long as Hamas remains part of the picture. Uh, and Amir, let me ask you, Haaretz is legendarily uh, a, you know, kind of left-of-center publication, has been very supportive of a two-state solution, the peace process. My guess is the kibbutz uh, that you're from is also... Uh, probably more in that camp than Prime Minister Netanyahu's camp. How, how do you, has this changed your view of the world? Does it give, just reflect, of, if you will, on what this has done for you politically and psychologically? I have to say, Farid, as a resident of Kibbutz Nachaloz for uh, several years before October 7, I never had any illusions about Hamas, and neither did my neighbors. We chose to live in this community directly on the border, and face the threat of mortar attacks and rocket attacks. And you know, Farid, in, in Kibbutz Nachal Oz and other border communities, there is no Iron Dome. We are so close to Gaza that Iron Dome does not protect us. So we never had any illusions about Hamas. We knew every day that there were people on the other side of the border who wanted to murder us. And I think from my point of view, what maybe has changed is the question of how much support does Hamas have among civilian population? Because more than the Hamas terrorists who entered our community on that morning and murdered 14 people and tried to murder me and my family, I think the more shocking issue was the fact that later civilians from Gaza came in and looted homes and some of them took part in terrible, violent, barbaric actions. That is the real question that we must present to ourselves. And I think in general in Israel today, anybody who's not doing some self-reflection is, uh, didn't get the memo. This is true for people who are talking about uh, long-term peace with Gaza, and it's just as true for supporters of the prime minister, who for 15 years had this idea of working with Hamas hand-in-hand hand and uh, building Hamas as an alternative to the Palestinian Authority and supporting the Qatari payments of cash money to Hamas. We all have now a moment in this country where we need to look back at mistakes of the past reflect on where we had been wrong. It's true, I can tell you for me personally. Uh, sadly, while I do see this process 
in my own environment, I have not seen it at all right now from the political leadership of the country, which is still stuck in October 6th and did not understand perhaps what has changed. Amir Tavon, thank you so much. I know it's a, a busy and complicated day for you, and we're very grateful that you took the time. Next on GPS, we'll look at the other releases during the truce, Palestinians from Israeli prisons. These releases are highly charged on both sides of the border wall. Find out why when we come back. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Yahya Sinwar the head of Hamas in Gaza and the alleged mastermind of the October 7th attack, spent some two decades in Israeli prisons. He was released in 2011 in an extraordinary swap with Israel. At the time, Israel traded more than 1,000 Palestinians for just one Israeli, a soldier named Gilad Shalit. So the release of Palestinians from Israeli detention is a sensitive subject for Israelis and an equally charged one for Palestinians. The head of the Palestinian Commission for Detainees and Ex-Prisoners Affairs told CNN that some 8,300 Palestinians are being held in Israeli jails and that more than 3,000 of them are being held under what Israel calls administrative detention. The Palestinians said this means they are being held without knowing the charges against them and without any ongoing legal process. CNN's Nada Bashir joins me now from Jerusalem with more. Now, to explain what that means, the, the, the Palestinians point to these prisoners uh, as, as a kind of proof of the very uh, dual system that they live under in places like the West Bank and Gaza. Ex explain who these people are who are being released. Absolutely, Freedom. We have seen uh, this issue of many Palestinians, particularly in the occupied West Bank, and particularly uh, teenagers, children under the age of 18, being detained often for months on end, sometimes even longer, without any knowledge of what they are being charged with, without access to legal representation, without an ongoing legal process. That is uh, the system termed as administrative detention. And as we have uh, seen over the last two days, many of those uh, people released, including Many teenage boys under the age of 18, uh, many of them between the ages of 16 and 18 rather, uh, have been held for months under administrative detention, unclear what charges uh, they have faced. And of course, uh, this has been an issue long before October 7th, and this uh, continues to be an issue. We are still seeing the arrests and detentions uh, of Palestinians, particularly in the occupied West Bank. Now, as we understand it, some 150 people, uh, Palestinians, will be released as part of this exchange agreement, as part of that truce agreement between Israel and Hamas. And earlier in the week, we saw a list 
issued by Israeli authorities, a list of 300 names of women and children who would be eligible for possible release as part of this agreement, many of them in that list under administrative detention. Of course, the Israeli authorities say some of those on that list were charged with more serious offences, uh, including the possession of weapons, including threatening regional security, some associated with terrorist activities, according to the Israeli authorities. But amongst those charges in that list, one of the most common was throwing stones uh, at Israeli soldiers uh, and risking regional security. And that is, of course, something that we have seen over the last two days in terms of the people that are being released. We've seen those crowds swelling around the occupied West Bank, particularly around Ramallah, to welcome the release uh, of these detainees and prisoners. Yesterday, we saw some 33 uh, teenage boys being released. The majority of them, again, were held under administrative uh, detention. Many of them said that they had no idea until the early hours of yesterday morning that they would be amongst those uh, released. And you can imagine the relief for many of those families now waiting to hear today if they will see their loved ones, their children released on this third day of that truce. Thank you so much, Nada. Pleasure to hear you. Uh, joining me now is Shibli Talhami. He is the Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland. He's also a senior fellow at Brookings. Um, Shibli, welcome. Tell us how this is playing in the Arab world. The, you are, you've, you've, you're a scholar of the Arab world. You've studied public opinion there for decades. Uh, the, the conventional wisdom had been for a while that, you know, while Arab leaders mouth support uh, for this, while even the Arab street gets riled up, people don't really care. It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue that, you know, look at the, uh, the Gulf Arabs making peace with Israel. What is going on now? What, do, what are you sensing? Well, uh, first of all, um, good to join you again, uh, Farid. Um, and and it was, it's nice to see um, some of the hostages come home. I feel um, uh, happy for the Israeli families who, who have loved ones and for the Palestinian families who are rejoined with their loved ones. Um, let me just, if you don't mind, just briefly address the prisoner issue, because this is the issue of the day, and I'll then talk about how that plays out in the Arab world. The reason for it is that this prisoner issue, obviously, it's very, very dear to the Israelis. You could see how happy they are with uh, uh, the release of uh, some of the hostages. Hopefully, all of them will be released. But this issue is so critical to Palestinians and Arabs broadly for three reasons. Uh, the one reason is the scale of it. Uh, you know, since the, the occupation started, uh, it's estimated that a million Palestinians, remember, this is a population of five million people in the West Bank and Gaza, a million Palestinians have been held, many of them, as your reporter had suggested, uh, without charges. Uh, there isn't a family that's not touched by that. So the scale of it is enormous. It's very difficult. The second is what you alluded to, the second, the two-tier system in the West Bank, where obviously Palestinians are under occupation. Those uh, can be arrested by the military without charges or on uh, called terrorists. Uh, some of them may have uh, carried out something that would match a terrorist label based on international definition of attacking civilians. Uh, many of them don't. Sometimes it is a speech. Uh, uh, almost 100% conviction rate in military courts. Right next door, you have Israeli settlers, Israeli settlers who are uh, living there uh, illegally under international law. Uh, but if they commit a crime against Palestinians, they're rarely charged, even when there is a death of a Palestinian and certainly uh, convicted. So you have that tiered system that rubs deeply into uh, the situation. The third one is that 
this idea of what violence is. We, we think of violence, uh, particularly in the West, when you're thinking about let's, tamp, let's, let's uh, reduce violence, let's make sure it doesn't erupt. We're thinking about, you know, explosions and shootings. Obviously, those are horrible, like we've seen, and the auto stuff. But the reality of the everyday, the reality of occupation, the fact that you can have a military going into somebody's home at four o'clock in the morning, arrest them without recourse, uh, that is a violent act. So the gun is always present for a lifetime for most Palestinians. Uh, even when the gun is not fired, it's always there. It's always a, it's a, occupation is a violent reality. That is the reality of everyday life for most Palestinians. And when, let's go back to normal, there is no normal. Normal is violence. Normal is a violent, subtle violence, but violence nonetheless. But in the Arab world, this issue obviously resonates. Uh, what we have seen, uh, certainly in the public opinion polling, uh, 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 we haven't really seen new public opinion polling, but, but before, obviously the Palestinian issue resonated with Arab publics, but not so much with governments, and governments have not paid much attention to it. They thought that publics uh, don't care as much about it. But this particular episode, I think, has not only resonated in the Arab world, it has probably created a transformative uh, uh, paradigm-forming moment. This is not simply a moment of anger. This is a moment, I think, where the shaping of an entire, uh, the opinion of an entire new generation that is likely to last. And it's implicating the U.S. in a direct way with the possibilities, and I hope not, but the possibilities of blowback, because they see the scale of the attack, you know, the equivalent of more than 200 nuclear devices uh, over a period of a month and a half in a, a very small area with thousands of children uh, killed, uh, over a million and a half uh, displaced. They can't understand how the U.S. would be okay with that. And, and, and so, yes, I think this has generated a tremendous transformation in public opinion. Now, obviously, it doesn't shift the strategic uh, interests of the Arab states. Uh, that remains to be seen. But I think it obviously will restrain what Arab governments can do. Do you think there's a possibility that a place like Bahrain, for example, which has a you know a large Shia population, uh, may may decide that it has to suspend the Abraham Accords? Uh, do you think that Saudi Arabia will delay normalization for indefinitely? Um, it's really impossible to know, Farid. Let me tell you why. I think we all kind of. Um, say, well, let's wait until this war is over. I'm not sure what that means, honestly, whether this war, quote, will be over. Uh, I'm not sure um, what destroying Hamas means other than destroying all of Gaza. Uh, I'm not sure whether there's going to be a moment where we say this is a moment of an opportunity. I think there's uh, there is goals that have been set here that cannot really be met. Um, and, uh, you know, the particularly uh, by the United States, not just the Israelis. Now, the Israelis, you can understand, you know, when you have a horrific attack like the one by Hamas, hearts harden and, and Palestinian hearts harden when they watch what the Israelis and feel what the Israelis are doing. Uh, you, you have an urge for vengeance. You have demonization. You have uh, you want to you want to do the maximum damage to the other. That's understandable. But what I can't really understand is how our own government, the United States government, has given a black blank check uh, in a matter that uh, impacts our own national interest, not only with blowback, uh, but the possible escalation. Uh, Shibli, and, I have to, uh, I have so to let I think, it, I have to let really it rest there. See. We are we are out of time. I really thank you. And we will, of course, have you back uh, for your insights. Pleasure to have you on.
Next on GPS, we will go even bigger picture and try to put the entire war in perspective. Richard Haas and Robin Wright join me to give us their wisdom. I want to pull back now with two guests who will help us think about the bigger picture of this truce, the war, and the politics of the region. Richard Haas is a former top State Department official and the President Emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations. Robin Wright is a contributing writer at The New Yorker, a distinguished fellow at the Wilson Center, and has covered the region for decades. Robin, let me start with you. You know Iran so well, and the thing that I've been struck by in all of this you know, sometimes, as Sherlock Holmes said, you have to pay attention to the dog that doesn't bark. Iran has been very restrained. Uh, Hezbollah has been fairly restrained. Uh, Nasrallah's speech basically said, we, we wish you well, but don't expect too much help from us. Uh, wh wh what do you think the calculation is there? This is Hamas's war, and from the beginning, both Hezbollah and Iran have indicated that they're not going to get engaged. If this had been a joint operation, Hezbollah has far more weaponry, several times the size of Hamas' arsenal. It would have been catastrophic for Israel. And it's very interesting that Hamas kept this apparently so within its own leadership in terms of when they were going to do what they were going to do specifically, that it didn't share even with some of its own leadership outside the country. Uh, this is not a good moment for Iran to engage in a war, given its own problems at home with protests. It has its own election next year. Hezbollah also is in a very different state than it was in 2006 when it launched an operation against Israel that led to a 34-day war, now the second longest war that Israel has fought. Uh, it, Lebanon is a failing state. Hezbollah is a major political player. It needs, it has to care about its constituency. And it's also at a point that it doesn't have any guarantees that Iran would be there to rearm, restock, and rebuild Lebanon. So uh, at the moment, Barring unintended consequences or a wild card event, uh, it looks like they are not going to provide the kind of help that Hamas had hoped once it launched its offensive that both would intervene and make it a broader region-wide war. Uh, Richard, what are your thoughts on Iran's role here? Uh, because it does also suggest that uh, Hamas is a little bit more independent of Iran than people had made it out. You know, it's always been true that Hezbollah, a Shiite organization that swears fealty to the supreme leader of, of Iran is very different from Ham Hamas, which is a Sunni organization that actually uh, supported, uh, the, you know, they, they, Hamas and uh, Iran were on the opposite sides of the Syrian civil war. So there's, does it suggest there's more distance? How do you read what's going on? Uh, I, I agree, Fried, with both what you said and what Robin said. I think one has to distinguish between Iran's strategic support for Hamas and uh, its tactical support. And the latter seems to have been missing in the case of this raid. For all we know, Hamas was worried that if it ran this idea by Iran, it would have been vetoed. This was very much Hamas's, uh, October 7th was very much for Hamas to basically say uh, their version of station identification. We are the only force in the Palestinian world willing and able to take on uh, Israel. Iran you know, also has you know, not, all sorts of economic problems right now. They want to, they're, they're exporting roughly 2 million barrels of oil a day. Not clear to me they want to see that interrupted. Neither does China. It's principal, uh, the country that gets most of Iran's exported uh, oil. So, yeah, but I take your point. I think this suggests that we use the phrase proxy a little bit too loosely. And there's a degree of autonomy. I wouldn't call it independence, 
but a degree of autonomy, particularly when it comes to tactical decisions. Uh, Robin, what are your thoughts on this issue of the, of, of the possibility of this spreading in different ways? Is there, are there other actors in the region who you think could get in? Uh, people have talked about, you know, the Houthis in Yemen. And, but it, it feels to me what we're seeing is a fairly classic contained Israeli-Palestinian war. So far contained. But what we are seeing is some of Iran's proxies, like the Houthis in Yemen, uh, some of the proxies in Iraq and Syria, taking on, in one case, Houthis taking on uh, Israel or, uh, in one case, uh, the U.S. But what's more important is Iran's proxies are taking on Americans who are fighting in a different war. Those Americans, 900 in Syria, 2,500 in Iraq, who are still deployed there as part of the anti-ISIS campaign to try to make sure that ISIS does not make a comeback, can't re, uh, rebuild the caliphate and challenge uh, the governments uh, in Iraq or um, in Syria. So this is, it's, it's very interesting how Iran is gaming this very shrewdly, tactically, taking on the American presence in the Middle East more broadly to try to suggest that the cost of deploying. Now, the one great danger down the road is that the United States is deploying. And uh, 2,000 troops, we're not sure where, probably some in Jordan, but the United States is not giving us full disclosure, as well as warships. And the great danger is that the United States is there to flex its muscles and to say, don't widen this war, but at the same time become targets for extremist groups, even lone wolves. And that's one of those wild cards that who knows what the unintended consequences of that kind of action might be. Stay with us. When we come back, I'm going to ask Richard Haas about Bibi Netanyahu's lousy options and Joe Biden's lousy options. Ask him what he would do if he were in either one's shoes. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And we are back with Richard Haas and Robin Wright. Richard, let me ask you about Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, does he have the right military strategy right now? Um, and does he have the right political strategy? I must confess the latter, uh, I'm not even sure I, I, I have, he's articulated, but I wanted to know what you think is going on. He, he has a military strategy, I would argue, and so would all the generals I've talked to say it's the wrong one. He doesn't have the wrong political strategy for it. He doesn't have a political uh, strategy. I think in the short run, he needs to focus on getting the hostages back. That is clearly the priority for the Israeli public. If and when he returns to military operations, it's got to be far, far more granular and discreet. It can't be these large campaigns dropping large bombs that are killing large numbers of civilians. It's just the wrong way to go about it. It's, it's, it's losing to American and international opinion. It's alienating Palestinians. It's, it's a great recruiting tool for Hamas and other uh, radical groups. And at some point, he has got to introduce a political dimension. You can't have simply a military effort against Hamas. You've got to have a political alternative. You've got to be able to say to Palestinians, look, 
violence is a dead end. You will never get what you want politically through violence, but there is an alternative, better way. There is a way through compromise and coexistence with Israel. Bibi has to introduce that. That's where, by the way, where I think President Biden can come in. I've been advocating that the president go to Jerusalem again, speak from the Knesset over the head of this prime minister and government, go to the Israeli people, make the case for a two-state solution. And he might want to make one stop on the way. And that is to resurrect the Saudi initiative. As you and Robin both know, one of the reasons that Hamas started this war on October 7th was to derail normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. I think the time has come to put that back on the table, to basically trigger a debate within Israel. Look, Israel, choice. A greater Israel with all your settlements, not giving the Palestinians a state of their own, or a greater peace, including a peace with the country, Saudi Arabia, that is pivotal in the Arab and Islamic world. So I think the United States, with Saudi Arabia as a partner, can introduce the political track that this government under Bibi Netanyahu is sorely and conspicuously lacking. Richard, you know Israel well. They are traumatized. And they're, they're, I think the Israeli argument would be, look, we tried peace. We, you know, uh, Barak made an offer to Arafat. He turned it down. Omert made an offer to Abu Mazen. He turned it down. Uh, we, you know, we, we, are, we are stuck with these lousy options because we don't have a partner. How do you break that, that logjam? Look, people are right to be suspicious. I've been involved in many of those uh, unsuccessful attempts uh, myself. One is to very much make it an Arab world, not as an alternative to the Palestinians, with, but with them. Too much in the past, we've worked with the Palestinians alone, historically, Farid, say under the Clinton administration. More recently, with the Abraham Accords, we've only worked with the Arab world, with the governments. I actually think we need to do the two together. And look, I understand the Israeli trauma. We're not talking about sharing neighborhoods. We're talking about separation. One of the reasons to have a Palestinian state in the West Bank and in Gaza is not to co-mingle. It's to separate, to come up with terms of, of, of separation so Palestinians can realize some of their aspirations or realize them, them separately. Any sort of coexistence of normalization may, may never happen, or if it were to happen, would happen far down the road. So this is not naivete. This is not asking people to forget about October 7th or decades of, of differences and violence. It's a way to basically preserve Israel as a secure, Jewish, democratic, prosperous state. Right now, all of that has been put at risk. This is not, you know, what I'm talking about is not simply a, a favor or call it what you will, a gift to Palestinians. This is a gift Israelis can and should and must make to themselves. Robin, I want to pick up on something Shibli uh, talked about, which is the, the images that were coming out of Israel, out of Gaza and the blowback to the United States. You know the region well. Do you think this is real? Is it something the United States should worry about? The United States should worry uh, very much about what the attitude is across uh, the Arab world, given the fact that the uh, Abraham Accords were the, the kind of ground uh, groundwork of both Republican and Democratic administrations to expand Arab-Israeli relations, uh, in part because they're, they share a concern about the future uh, with Iran in the region. Um, but I think that, the, to Richard's point, the, 
goal is clearly by the Biden administration to try to get the peace process back on track. The danger is that with every war, Israel turns further to the right. And that doesn't necessarily mean that Bibi Netanyahu stays around, but it does mean that, that uh, peace is more difficult for Israelis to traumatized Israelis. I fear that we're further away from a revived peace process than at any time since 1993, 30 years since the Oslo Accords, and that the danger is that all the sides have very different goals. Hamas to destroy Israel, Israel to destroy Hamas. The United States hopes for a two-state solution that neither side is willing to discuss. And I think that the, uh, the uh, Israel-Saudi peace process or rapprochement was much further away, I've been told by people in the White House, than was widely assumed. Yes, it was on the table. Yes, there was interest. But there were an awful lot of specific details, including the fact that the United States um, was asked by the Saudis to provide basically the same kind of protection that it does with its NATO allies, including a nuclear umbrella. And that's a very controversial idea in the United States. So it's, uh, it's, it, this, this war has now entered American politics, may play out in the election year. And remember, Presidents Reagan and Carter both were traumatized by hostage ordeals that affected their presidencies. Robin Wright, thank you so much, as always. Richard, if you will stay with me, I want to uh, talk about Ukraine, the war that is, the other war that is going on that we really do have to, to get to. Um, I also want to mention that Israeli President Itzhak Herzog uh, will join Wolf Blitzer for an exclusive interview today on Inside Politics. That's the next show up here on CNN at 11 a.m. This just into CNN, the Israeli Defense Forces say the Red Cross has received a handover of 17 Israeli and foreign hostages who were released from captivity in Gaza. We are back with Richard Haas. Richard, um, I want to just take you briefly to the other war that is ongoing uh, in a brutal stalemate right now in Ukraine. And it feels to me like you have an important foreign affairs article. You're saying something similar to what you were just saying about U.S. strategy toward Israel. U.S. strategy towards Ukraine, you're saying, is publicly 100% supportive, but privately, we're very worried about where things are going. Uh, why don't you set out what your concern is and, what, and where you want a kind of fairly substantial course correction? Yeah, look, the idea is that Ukraine is on a course, hopefully, to liberate the 20% of its territory that Russia occupies. The problem for you is there's very little, if any, evidence that it's going to be able to achieve that. And I worry that Western American, European support for Ukraine will, will begin to fade. It's already happening. I worry about the cost to Ukraine. So what I am arguing that is that Ukraine ought to switch its strategy, not give up on its long-term goals of getting back what's rightfully theirs, but to focus on defending what it has on the 80%, making sure Russia cannot succeed in eliminating Ukraine, which is what it set out to do nearly two years ago, this would allow Ukraine to rebuild. It would reduce the defense requirements uh, from the United States and, and Europe. So I actually think it needs to re recast its military strategy. And I'd make a larger point for you, something you understand as well as anybody. Anytime in foreign policy, there's a gap between your means and your ends, you run into trouble. The ends are, are laudable. They're just too ambitious right now. So I think Ukraine has to dial back in the United States just like we need to have some difficult conversations with Israel about what it's doing or not doing militarily and politically, 
I think the time has come for the United States to have some awkward but necessary conversations with Ukraine to basically say, we want you to survive. Let's recast your strategy. We will give you security assurances, but we have to put on the back burner your long-term goal of getting back all of your territory. Very briefly, Richard, the one problem I, I, I sense uh, in reading that article is Ukraine is not really viable right now as an economic entity without uh, the ability to export its grain out of Odessa. You know, exporting by sea is much cheaper than by land. What, you know, shouldn't they fight at least to get control of Odessa? Oh, I have no problem with that. And that could be the, the stipulation that that would be the point you'd have to get to. And then you would park it there. That would be the interim arrangement for you. That would make Ukraine economically viable militarily secure and that would become a plateau not a permanent outcome but a plateau until perhaps you have a different leadership in russia that is fired about russia being a pariah and being the target of economic sanctions words of wisdom as always richard thank you thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week i will see you next week Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.